back at the beginning of January, we started a new series of Sunday morning studies on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, if you're worshiping with us for the first time this morning, or you've tuned into our television broadcast, or you're listening through internet streaming, it will be helpful for you to know a little about Nehemiah before we launch into the scripture reading. Nehemiah was an official in the court of King Artaxerxes of Persia. The Persians were the dominant force. They were the superpower in the Middle East of the year 445 BC when this takes place. Nehemiah was a descendant of folks from Israel, Jerusalem in particular, and living hundreds if not the best part of a thousand miles away, he discovered that the city of Jerusalem was in bad shape. It had been conquered a number of times. The leadership or those with potential as leaders were forcibly taken away from Israel, and under the king of Persia, they had been repatriated, and some had gone back, although some had remained in Persia. They had rebuilt the temple and the altar in downtown Jerusalem, but the city of Jerusalem itself was in dire straits. And on hearing this, Nehemiah, in the providence of God, had gone back to the city, had started to rebuild with the help and authorization of King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. And initially, it had gone extremely well. But by the time you get to chapter 4, some opposition to the rebuilding is taking place. So that sets the scene for the passage we are about to read. And so we break into chapter 4 at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said before they know it or see us we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over wherever you turn they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rise of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. I think all of us at some point in our lives have had the experience of hoping and dreaming and planning, but when those hopes and dreams and plans come to fruition, they don't turn out the way we had initially planned them. And that was the case for 
Nehemiah. He had arrived in Jerusalem with incredible sense of calling. God in his sovereign purposes had called Nehemiah for exactly that time to carry out the work that he had in mind. And in those early days, we discovered in chapter 2, and you saw some of it last Sunday morning, you discovered that Nehemiah arrives in the city of Jerusalem. He does so quietly. He wanders around the city for three full days, not drawing attention to himself, praying, preparing, longing to see God at work. He then speaks to the elders of the people of Israel there in Jerusalem. They marshal together and begin to make a start on rebuilding the wall. They're hoping, of course, it will bring security, self-confidence, purpose, meaning, direction for the people of Israel. And all of that was in its early days last Sunday morning. One of the things we saw in those first two chapters of Nehemiah was this. Godly leadership is always conceived and birthed and developed in a godly relationship. And it's Nehemiah's relationship with God that dominates those first two chapters. You see him almost at the drop of a hat, stopping and praying, and in fact prevailing in prayer. And the difference between prevailing in prayer and casual prayer is this. Casual prayer is when you ask God to bless something you have already determined is going to happen. And prevailing prayer is the opposite. Prevailing prayer is when you begin to pray, Lord, show me what you're already doing. Equip and enable me to then join in your purposes and your plans. And that was Nehemiah. Godly leadership in the midst of prevailing prayer, seeking and sensing the presence and direction and purpose of God. All of that in chapters 1 and 2. And by the time you get into chapter 4, opposition is beginning to arise. Look at the opening words of chapter 4. We didn't read this passage, so please uh, follow along with me if you could. Chapter 4, verse 1. We read, when Sanballat, now Sanballat was probably the governor of the neighboring region called Samaria. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, it would break down their walls of stone. Now, here's my question. If those walls were so badly built, why was Sanballat getting upset? Why was he angry? Why was he incensed? Because if it amounted to nothing, it was just more rubble. But Sanballat knew what was going on. 
He was seeing the people of Israel for the first time in hundreds of years establishing an independent nation once again, no longer dependent on Samaria, no longer dependent on the kingdom of Persia, but clearing the streets, making room for exports and imports and traffic and merchandise, putting up a wall to provide security not just for that generation, but for subsequent generations to follow. And here was God calling them and resourcing and equipping them for this massive task. And it was extensive, to say the least. And then criticism comes. Criticism is often a little word here, a little word there. And then criticism moves to conspiracy. And then it becomes contagious. This isn't simply one or two people saying, oh, really, do I have to give up my weekend to build this wall again? This is a massive civil engineering project, but God is right at the heart of it. And Nehemiah has provided timber and stone and engineers and help, and the people of God are stepping up right, left, and center. In fact, Quickly look at chapter 3 with me. I'm not going to deal with all of chapter 3, but follow me, please, if you can, in your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 1. What do we see? Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Then jump to verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt. And then verse 6. Jeshanah. I think that's my best pronunciation. Jeshana, the Jeshana gate was repaired. Then verse 13, the valley gate was repaired. Verse 14, the dung gate was repaired. Verse 15, the fountain gate was repaired. Verse 17, next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites. Then down verse 22, the repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Again and again and again and again, you see the people of God stepping up rolling up their sleeves, sensing the call of God to transform the city, not only for their generations, but generations yet unborn. That's what was going on. This was a massive development, a new start. God was calling them into the next phase of the life in downtown Jerusalem. And then, of course, we notice the chit-chat and the criticism was coming. Now, if you have ever headed up a department in your place of employment, if you've ever sought to head up the PTA in your primary or secondary school, if you've ever been invited to look after grade six boys as for basketball and you've become the coach, after those first couple of weeks of great joy and opportunity, you begin to get the late-night emails. Why did my son not play in his proper position this evening? Then the next day, I've been talking to Jack. His son didn't play in the proper position, and my son didn't either. You could have doubled the score if you had really thought through the approach you were taking. And it goes on and on and on and on. It's easy to be critical when you are the armchair coach, Monday morning quarterback, it's 
It's very easy when you've no skin in the game. You can sit back and relax and just criticize, talk a great game. That was Sanballat. That's where the opposition was coming from. They weren't coming to say, we are thrilled and delighted that you're developing as a city. They weren't coming to say, how can we help? Can the Sumerian army bring water or help with quarrying stone and cutting timber and help any way we can? None of that. Cynicism, criticism, insidious as it was. And how does Nehemiah respond? Look at what happens. Chapter 4. Verse 4, he does exactly what a godly leader would do. He prays. Tobiah, excuse me, verse 4, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Understand what was happening here. Nehemiah would be faced with unforeseen setbacks, unrelenting deadlines, increasing criticism, personality conflicts, financial pressures, all building, 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 leading to cynicism, criticism, discouragement. And he instinctively, naturally prays. Godly leadership coming from a godly relationship. And there is nothing sanitized, nothing manufactured about Nehemiah's prayer. He's angry. His blood is up. He is wrestling with emotion. And he's asking for their downfall. But please notice this. What he asks in prayer, he leaves in prayer. Nehemiah doesn't bring a group of the strongest men of Jerusalem together and say, let's cross the border into Samaria. Let's do a night attack. Let's start a diversionary tactic over here and leave our folks to get on with the wall over there. Let's be proactive. Let's criticize Sanballat. Let's bring the game to him. None of that. Doesn't start a letter-writing campaign. He doesn't do what Sanballat does. He doesn't even contact King Artaxerxes and said, please, can you intervene for us? We're making so much progress. This is a remarkable accomplishment but we need Sanballat off our backs. What he does is pray and then leaves it with the Lord. And for some of us, that is hard to do, especially the A-type personalities among us because we want to take action. If we're taking action, we've got our hands in the steering wheel. We know what should happen. We've got the best ideas. We can move forward. We can sort this. He does the opposite. He trusts and he prays. Now, in addition to that, Nehemiah responds with constructive change. He looks at the wall. He looks at where the weak parts are. 
He has astute observations. He's involved in careful planning. And when he sees weak spots, he sends some extra builders there. And notice what he says further on in the passage. Some of them continue building and others are given spears and bows and swords to defend just in case they're attacked at that point. Astute observation, constructive change, careful planning, absolutely appropriate timing. Now, if you have ever tried to remodel your kitchen and the contractor tells you it will take eight weeks in your mind, think 12. That's just the way it goes. Halfway through, you'll begin to think, was it really worth it? The old kitchen served us for years. Is it really worth it? And it's easy in the midst of transformation to give up. It's easy to think, is this the time? Is God really calling us to this? Are we certain? And that's exactly what's going on with Nehemiah. He prays. And then, notice what happens. Verse 9. We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So what is he doing? He is doing as much as he possibly can spiritually. And then he's doing as much as he possibly can physically. The issues outside of his control, he's handed them over and left them with the Lord. Because if you try to solve, if you try to manufacture a response to issues outside of your control, it will end up in disaster. You can trust him. You can. People of Jerusalem, people of Israel, were beginning to mumble and complain and the criticism was becoming insidious and things were not going well. And notice what Nehemiah does. Verse 14, chapter 4. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. In other words, the circumstances and the threats, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In other words, he's saying to them, take your eyes off the rubble. Don't focus on the mess. Don't focus on what was. Focus on what will be. And remember what's going on here. It's not simply the building of the wall. It's not simply the making available of new facilities that will bless and encourage them and their children and grandchildren. But in the greater, wider, eternal purposes of God, he was rebuilding Jerusalem because he knew this. No Jerusalem, no Bethlehem, no Bethlehem, no Messiah. When God calls you to a particular challenge, when He equips you and calls you and begins to shape you for what to, is to come, He is sufficient for every challenge you will every challenge you will face. 
Take your eyes off the rubble and the old stone and lift them high. Father, what are you doing? Where are you taking us? Are you taking us to be a people whose dreams are greater than our memories? Do you remember that phrase from the book of Revelation? that we looked at some 18 months ago when I took you through Revelation and you turned up on a Sunday morning shaking your heads, tearful, saying, Richard, do we need another chapter on Revelation? Do you remember all of that? In the next six to eight weeks, you're going to hear more and more about the next phase of life and ministry God is calling us to, right here in the corner of Washington and Richardson. Most of you are aware of our capital campaign. Some of you have been to the town hall meetings. Others have been in Sunday school. Some of you have chatted with elders and deacons. You know, we are very serious taking down our old buildings, our old gym, the school buildings that are currently there, and putting up new buildings, new adult classroom, new youth section, a children's central gate where parents, instead of dropping children in two or three people, can drop them in one area. A central gathering space where the entire church can meet Sunday morning and enjoy fellowship with coffee store and a bookstore. In addition to that, an 1,100-seater worship and art center. We're running out of room down in Ignite with nowhere else to put them. And we're being called of God into this next phase of life and ministry. And it is a massive challenge. We understand that fully. The last two and a half years, our elders and deacons have been praying and wrestling and saying, Father, what is involved? Where are you taking us? The cost, $35 million. I never imagined in seminary that I would ever oversee a project like that. In fact, several times I prayed I wouldn't. But here it is. And that's who we are. And that's where he's calling us. Because we are the people who have a burden to transform the spiritual heart of this city. And God, it seems, rather than have us go out to the four corners of the earth, is bringing them to us. And we have an opportunity to invest for the future. And he's called us. And our job is to roll up our sleeves. To do whatever comes our way. One of the verses that struck me quite profoundly. In verse 14 of the previous chapter. Look at it with me if you can. Verse 14 we read. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah son of Rechab. Ruler of the district of Beth Hakerem. Can you imagine the conversation when he turned up and said, I'm the ruler of the region close by. I hear you're building a wall. I want to help. And they say, thank you. We needed someone for the dung gate. Please go ahead. Now, if you're putting the gate on the temple, that's exciting. That's a prize spot, but the dung gate? For the sewages and the water flows. But there he is rolling up his sleeves and getting on with the challenge. Because God is at work and calling him. In their day, it was a once in a generation call. And that call has now fallen to us. 
the decisions we make, the action we take over the next six to eight weeks will impact the life and ministry of our congregation for the next 30 to 35 years. It's as serious as that. People are already saying to me, Richard, we keep hearing it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Give me something to do now. Well, here it comes. Four things. Number one, recognize the enormity and immensity of the task before us. It is huge. Don't underestimate it. Number two, prayerfully be saying, Father, what would you have me do? How do I play my part? What can I do? Become involved. Become involved. Number three, when we're tempted to think this is too large for us, remember what Nehemiah said to the people of his day. He said, do not be afraid. You'll find it right there, verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Hold your head high. Understand the privilege that God has given us to invest and change and impact the spiritual heart of this city. What a privilege. And fourthly, I said it moments ago, the decisions we make and the action we take will directly impact your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and the spiritual heart of this city. Folks, those are not idle words. For he has called us for such a time as this, frightening as it may seem. It may cause us hesitation. It may drive us to our knees. But we are at our most powerful position when we're on our knees. Amen? Amen. And may God enable us in this generation to respond to his call. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the challenge this morning from Nehemiah. Enable us, please, to sense you at work. Show us the way forward. Bless us, equip us, encourage us, and allow us, please, to sense the excitement and the blessing you have in store for us. Bless us, please, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.